Welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And. And. Natalie. Natalie, Natalia, Natasha, Natashenka. Natalie Kogan is joining us for this episode. We cannot wait for you to hear about this conversation. It was inspiring, enlightening, and many other adjectives. And if this is your first time listening to The Mentors, this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs, leaders, and creators despite lack of experience, money, or connections. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm sitting there minding my own business, you know, in the oficina, and Vadim sends me this article, um, a LinkedIn post by this woman, Natalie Kogan. And she's talking about public speaking in this article and how she's found that to be her calling. Vadim and I care a lot about public speaking. We're always trying to get better at it. You know that if you listen to the show. So it resonated and I read it and it was a pretty awesome article. We mentioned it in the episode, but we did something extra. We decided to reach out and try and get her on the show. And to our pleasure, she agreed. And a few reasons selfishly why we wanted her on our show. First of all, the article just screamed authenticity. We ended up watching some of her videos online. Just the energy was so positive and great that we felt like it'd be great to have that woman somehow associated with us and in our life. But also, we got really excited about what she was working on, which is happier.com, which of course you'll hear about in this episode. Actually, it will go more into the business that she built in the second half of the episode. But also, she is an immigrant just like us. She came to this country when she was 13 years old from the former Soviet Union and also doesn't have an accent just like us. Well, you be the judge. Some people think that we do have slight accents, but has been in the country for a long time. And so there are just so many parallels, even career-wise. She's been a VC, right? Sergey's a VC. Even career-wise that we thought we have to get to know this woman and get her on the show because she's incredibly inspirational. And hopefully she can be inspiring to our audience, which she absolutely is. She's had a ton of success in her life. And as you'll learn from this episode, success and financial success, even though she achieved it at 28 years old, did not always translate to personal fulfillment. And she's going to walk you through and talk to us about her transformation how she ended up finding that fulfillment. And we're also going to learn in this first half a little bit about how to be an amazing public speaker. That's something that, you know, she channels her own personality through the way she speaks is just her. And we're excited for you to learn about how she gets to do that in a way that impacts a ton of people. She gives speeches uh, to huge audiences, thousands of people sometimes, which is amazing. We try to book people on the show that we want to emulate, but also people that inspire us and that are doing incredible things. Hopefully, trust us by now that we can vet these folks pretty well, and Natalie is incredible. So we hope to do some recordings with her in the future where we can dive even deeper into some of these topics. We even talked with her a little bit about how we could potentially collaborate to have her give a talk to some of the students that we work with. So we really enjoyed this episode. We caught ourselves listening really intently to what she had to say and we hope you enjoy it as well without further ado That's here's awesome. natalie Kogan. Um, i wish i could say the same thing yeah like i don't know i feel like there's i mean uh, clearly i think that's probably why like this people really resonate with your talks because you're so authentic yeah uh, and i'm sure it comes out we say whatever comes to mind but i but i still think that sometimes especially when we're doing like recordings and stuff like this you'll have a certain like radio voice or something that oh, gets yeah. stuck in my head or even when I'm in, or like when I'm on stage, I I'm very aware because we do some public speaking as well, but I'm, and I teach. And so I'm very aware how I'm going to 
create like a narrative or how I'm going to uh-huh. just, I guess, narrate whatever I'm going to say. So it's almost like I'm listening to myself as uh, Morgan Freeman or something. Yeah, <laughs> no, you know, but I totally get it. And I really think it's just um, like, it's just time, right? Like mm-hmm. I've, you know, it's funny, I didn't set out to become a speaker. It's about 50% of how I teach, right? 50% of what I do. And 50% is our whole happier at work program and the stuff we're doing with leaders. But 50% is me on stage talking. And it's, you know, it took me, I'm 43, it took me 42 years to recognize, I wrote a big article on this, you might have read on LinkedIn. But so I, I have a gift, right? I obviously have a gift, but many people with a gift, the, the thing that I've learned is, first of all, I work very, very hard to for it to be in flow and easy for me. And I'm not telling you guys, because you don't know that. It's just, you know, like I have friends and they're like, oh my God, it's so cool. You get to like fly to Vegas, get on stage with 10,000 people. I'm like, do you have any fucking idea? Like how many hours go into a talk? Like we're talking, you know, a new talk is 60 to hundred hours, every talk. Cause I custom, you know, but my point is, so it's, first of all, there's like a lot of under, you know, the bottom of the iceberg, there's a lot of work that goes in, but the not listening to yourself, I just think it's time. Um, and the number, the amount of time you do it. Cause I think I used to do that too. Like people love my TED talk and I, it's insane how much speaking we book off of my TED talk still. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting ready to do another one, which is crazy or to even think about another one. Um, cause I'm starting to work on my next book, which is all for leaders An increasing part of my, uh, part of what we do at happier. My work is for leaders, but like at my TED talk, I, uh, I think it's a good talk. I don't think it's great. Um, mm-hmm. and also I super where I was listening to myself. So I totally hear you and I'm giving you advice you didn't ask for, which my boss in venture capital used to say is worth exactly what you pay for it. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I just think it's like you yeah. do it more and more and more. And then eventually, you know, and not to get like all uh, crazy spiritual, but this is a, a Russian Jew talking. So when I say the word <laughs> spiritual, you know, I mean it because um, I <laughs> grew up with completely not that, but it's, it's about disconnecting your frontal cortex, like mm. to get sciency. It's about getting out of your own way and like getting to that deeper, like true self of you. And that, I just think it's the number of times you do it literally. So mm. there's your little pep talk on public speaking. Um, Cause I totally used to do that too, but now it's ex- like, I, and people get really surprised because I'll be chatting with someone before I go on stage. Then I go on stage and then I come off stage and I chat with them and there's no, you know, I may speak louder. Um, if it's like 10,000 people, you know, but I, there's nothing else that changes. Would you say that's similar to uh, somebody else would say like developing a muscle memory, if you will, so that you don't, it's almost automatic at that point? Yes, I, I think it's very related. Um, I, uh, and you, I gave you the explanation that mixes the Western and the Eastern or the Western, the scientific and the spiritual. And this is kind of my work is both based on science and a lot of, I think, kind of spiritual Eastern traditions. So yes, I think part of it is muscle memory. And part of it is, I don't know if you guys have read, like, this is kind of a tangent, but it's all good for the world and for everybody. Um there's a writer called Michael Singer. He's a spiritual teacher. He's I consider him a teacher, even though I've never met him. And he wrote two amazing books, one of which was kind of one of the I write about in my book. It was like part of my journey of total transformation. And it's called um, The Surrender Experiment. In it, he talks about this realization that completely changed his life. And by the way, like he went on a spiritual journey and then started a $2 billion company that he sold to WebMD. So um <laughs> I used to think like spiritual means you're lazy. Mm-hmm. That was how dumb I was. But he talks about this concept that really like truly changed the course of my life. And it's directly related to this is that um, you are not the person who 
you're not thinking your thoughts, you're the one who hears them. Mm. And so this idea that this voice that we hear in our head, so when you're listening to yourself talk, like, or the voice, the thoughts, the voice that we hear in our head, that's kind of our, um, I don't know, ego self, outside self. And there's a deeper, like, wisdom, there's a deeper true self. And to me, it's in the Western science, you'd say muscle memory, automatic. The other way to think about it is you're, you're just connecting to your more true self that you don't need to listen to yourself all the time. You're disconnecting from that voice. But literally, it's it's literally about a little bit disconnecting from your frontal cortex. Like I've done a lot of research on creativity and like rappers, for example, at the moment that the rapper, when they're freestyling, comes up with a new lyric, the activity in their frontal cortex, which is the thinking, analyzing part is very low. Mm. So they're tapping into something else. Um, and there's a Western explanation, an Eastern explanation. So I think it's, you know, the shorthand is muscle memory, but I think it's also just this true idea of you connect to your true self. So you're in true flow. And so you don't need to listen to yourself all the time because the reason you're kind of listening is it's the doubt in you mm. is listening. Interesting. And so when you can get to a place where you don't, you don't need to check yourself all the time, you can just do it. Yeah. And I, you know, it's not that I'm not aware of what I'm saying. Of course I am. And you know, there's time and slides and I'm very, um, but like the huge shift for me has been, I'm much more like, I feel the audience and that's my entire focus. And I, I'm, I connect with them. It takes me a couple of minutes, but then it's like become one. And then that's how I shift. Like if I see that a point is, I'm not feeling them with me, I'll speed up or I'll, you know, and so I'm not listening to myself as much as I'm kind of sensing them, but I only was able to do it because I've been doing it so long and because it's like the thing that feels truly home for me. Interesting. And I think part of the reason probably why you can connect so much with the audience is it sounds like you are someone that has high emotional IQ. You can not only read the room in this scenario, but I'm, I'm almost certain that when you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody, for example, you're probably very well aware of kind of their facial expressions and what they're thinking you're probably quickly able to connect there so i would bet that that's just part of who you are but i'm curious so you've been speaking now in public and that, that's been a big part of your job and what you realize is your passion for how long let's say three years three years okay and you know i, I actually did read the article that you uh, mentioned <laughs> earlier and i have a screenshot of part of it here that i want to read uh where it says that in terms of you finding your purpose it didn't happen overnight the universe had to chip away at my refusal to let go of my story of what my career path was supposed to be slowly and consistently. I want yes. to hit on that because you've had a very varied career, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, you started yeah. off, at, I guess this is a good time to do a little intro about you. You started off yeah. at McKinsey as a consultant, probably right after college, I'm assuming. Uh, you yep. were VC by 26. You started a publishing company. Uh, you started your own startups. You were part of other startups. You were in leadership positions. You've helped sell companies. You've done a ton. Uh, and through this work, you know, you've been featured through New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, New York Magazine, Bloomberg TV. So you have a, a lot of accolades. You're a writer as well, had a very successful book. And eventually, and only three years ago, you, I guess, hit on the fact that what, where you find a lot of purpose, uh, or I guess passion, is this work that you do through your speaking. But you did mention in the sentence, you had this definition of who you were supposed to be. And I think a mm. lot of people have that idea in their mind. They map out what their career should look like, what they should mm -hmm. do to get there. And maybe sometimes too late, hopefully not too late, uh, they realize that they should have been doing something different all along. But you luckily realized that earlier on. So 
How were you able to chip away at that? Was it just like an aha moment or was it really that slow? Uh, it's a great question. And I'll try to, I'll try to be as succinct as possible. You know, it, even in, in asking your question, what you're revealing is kind of this concept that most of us have, and I'm not judging, I'm just illuminating it, the should, right? That here's the career I should have, here are the steps I should take. And that was absolutely how I lived my life. As uh, you guys know, I grew up in the Soviet Union. I came here as a refugee when I was 13. And, you know, you come to America, it's the dream. Your parents gave everything up. I didn't speak English. We lived in the projects on welfare, on food stamps, Everyone made fun of me. You know, it was kind of this really tough beginning. And what that can do, and this is, by the way, why I think so many immigrants um, are become entrepreneurs, is you kind of, for me, it, it got me into this mindset of like, okay, I'm going to just, it's me against the world and everything is going to be a struggle because it's just hard, but I'm going to build something amazing. I'm going to, I should be really successful, right? I'm going to achieve so many things because that's what I should do. Like I should honor this gift of being given an opportunity to build a life in America. And so I kind of very early on, you know, got into this headspace of not only, okay, I'll only feel good once I achieved you know, amazing things that make my parents proud, but also that this is what I should be doing. Like, this is what I should be doing. And like my husband and I met at Wesleyan and we, so we've been together at Wesleyan University. So we've been together for like, I don't know, 23 years. We're like old married mm -hmm. couple. And we laugh because like when he met me, um, like in college, not most people aren't like that. Like I by the age of, um, I don't know, let's say, so my daughter was born when I was 28. So by 28, I'd had an incredibly successful career. I'd made so much money that I paid off both of our crazy college loans. I was being able to like take my parents on nice vacations. I had a child. We lived in New York City. I was a managing director at a venture firm. At the same time, had a, we started our own publishing company, right? And I don't say any of this to brag. It's that I had this vision. I'm going to be this really successful executive. I'm going to, um, you know, make enough money to take care of my family and my parents. I'm going to get married, have a child, live in New York City. And it's not that it was bad, but I was so caught up in the should that I literally never, and this I can say with full honesty, I never in my life paused to ask, what do I want to do hmm. ever? And I want to own up to this. I, I judged like, I like looked down upon this American idea of, oh, explore what you want to be. I thought it was ridiculous because my whole concept was the should. Now, the question to ask is where did that come from? And for me, it came from fear. It took me a really long time and it took me completely burning out and breaking down later, later um, to really kind of have that awareness. For me, that came from fear, from fear um, that I guess I developed as a refugee of being the other, of not fitting in, of not being good enough. So should, but the thing is what I've realized through my work and I, you know, I really have the honor. It's a gift. I, I take all of it. I never take any of it for granted, but I've now worked with hundreds of thousands of people, executives, leaders, entrepreneurs. I think fear is at the core of most of our shoulds. And it's not always fear we recognize, but it's fear of not being successful enough, our parents not respecting us enough, people not respecting us. That was my driving force. I didn't realize it for a long time. And so to answer your question, um, and I promise this is part of the answer, but for me, you know, like speaking, let's take speaking, for example, 
I had many opportunities to speak, even as I had very, you know, careers as a venture capitalist, as a tech executive. I was at Microsoft for a while. I ran some other technology companies. I'd started a couple of companies. So I'd have opportunities to speak, whether it was a panel or someone would invite me to do a talk. And every single time I did, it felt mm. amazing. But I never allowed myself to even accept that that felt amazing. I would just be like, moving on, because what did that have to do with my should? Nothing. It had nothing to do with it. There were, and there were people in my life, my father, who is, you know, my closest life advisor. We moved to Boston from New York to be close to my parents. They live two miles away. My, my hero, my life advisor. Um, I remember I was at McKinsey and he would say to me, you know, you, you need to teach people. You need to, we need you to figure out a way to be on TV or on stage. And I thought he was insane. Like I thought literally, and he's the smartest person I know. He's like a legitimate genius, right? And so there were people in my life. And as I, you know, write in this article, like there were opportunities that constantly would be given to me. And every time I did it, it was such great response. And I felt so good, but never did I acknowledge it because it didn't fit what they should. And when you have fear that is underlying the should, you don't pause to even allow yourself to be like, wait a second. That felt really good. Why? What could that be? Should I do more of it just to be curious about it? So for me, it wasn't an aha moment. Um, it, well, or you know what? It was an aha moment, 42 mm. years in the making, in a way. There was this one moment um, that I can point to where I did pause. Um, and I, I do write about it in this article. I was giving this big talk for which I was booked without my recognizing of how crazy it was to be booked by the for this particular talk without an agent and it was a really great talk it was a huge standing ovation i was crying everyone was crying and i couldn't figure out why and then i realized i wasn't crying because it was a standing ovation it's awesome i don't want to mm -hmm. say it's not but i i delivered this talk at a moment in my life where i was like struggling to come out of full burnout everything was broken in my life my life my career happier my marriage and so when you're in that place where you get broken, also what gets broken are all these walls you put around yourself. And it was that moment because everything was, I, I was no longer fighting for the should because the should brought me to total burnout that it was 42 years, but led to that moment where I had this, I, I just allowed myself to pause and say, maybe this is something I should think about, you know, just that it wasn't like I should do this more. It was like, this feels really amazing. I'm obviously able to serve people in this way. What could that mean? So I guess my my next question would be, because this sounds obviously amazing that you were able to get to that point and have that uh, moment of realization, almost enlightenment, it sounds like to me. Uh, but yeah. what do you say to somebody that says, but how do I achieve or remove this should thinking without having to kind of get to the bottom or have some kind of breakdown? Of course. Yes. And by the way, let me just say, I'm not recommending it. And in fact, I have dedicated my career, my company, I changed the entire, right? Happier started out as, you know, the mission has always been the same. I've always wanted to teach people emotional health as a skill so they can thrive. Um, but we started out, as you guys know, with, we focused on gratitude. We built a very popular mobile app around gratitude, 8 million gratitude moments, 1 million people using it. But then when I went through my whole uh, burnout and breakdown, I came back when I realized that I wanted to teach, that we wanted to teach people. I changed my entire company um, to do that. So, But I'm not recommending it because I don't think it's necessary. And the way that I talk about this and what I suggest to people is if you just notice how I talked about speaking, that whenever I would do it, 
it felt natural to me. I felt at home. It felt meaningful to me. And those are the things to pay attention to. You know, one of the five, so, you know, I've kind of now developed what we call the happier method, which is these five um, science-backed skills to improve not just your emotional health, but to help you thrive at work as a leader, as an entrepreneur. One of these skills is what I call the bigger why, and that is connecting to your sense of purpose and meaning. And like some of our listeners, probably maybe you guys, like I used to think of meaning as this thing somewhere out there and you had to go on a pilgrimage to find it, right? It's like in that book mm -hmm. by Paolo Coelho, The Alchemist, right? But the thing is that the best place to find meaning and the best way to look for it is within the things you do day to day. And so what I say to people who haven't yet touched upon that is think about what are the moments in your life where you felt you were doing something that just felt so natural and powerful? What were the moments in your life that you felt really excited to be doing what you were doing? What were the moments in your life that felt meaningful or purposeful? Those are signals to you of what you may want to lean into more. And the thing is, you know, again, um, that's why I'm like, I, I'm so conscientious of saying it wasn't some big aha moment. It was many, many decades in the making. But what I didn't allow myself to do, maybe it could have come sooner, Whenever I felt that way, I never opened my mind to being curious where it might lead. And so when you, when you think about, okay, what are the moments in my work or my life with, that I feel excited and in flow and at ease and meaningful? Well, I'm not saying, okay, go do that thing. I'm simply saying, follow that thread, you know, become more open and curious about it. Is that something you could do more to learn more of? Is this something you want to do? Right. So, but it's really to look for those moments of meaning and the moments that feel natural and at ease and excited because we derive meaning as human beings when we bring our strengths in service of something else or someone else or a craft, right, that we're developing. That's where we derive meaning. And so do that little exercise with yourself and think back, you know, I talk about there's a whole practice around this that I talk about in my book where do this little workshop with yourself, go and make a list of all those moments that felt that way. And then think about what you might want to do more. But um, I'm really passionate about the fact that meaning, we can discover that by really looking within our day to day and the things we've done, we don't have to have a breakdown or, you know, give up everything in our lives to find it. That's it for part one of our conversation with Natalie Kogan. You're hopefully starting to get as inspired as we were when we were having this conversation. Actually, when we listen back, uh, we absorb so much more than in the moment because you're kind of in the conversation. You're thinking of what to say next. So um, we were super inspired when we listened to this first half. And next week... We're going to dive more into how she actually transformed and built happier into the large multi, I mean, I believe it's a multi seven figure, if not higher uh, business at this point and how she gets to do what she loves, just like she talked about in this episode, while also having an impact that has created a self-sustaining business for her, her family and for her community. As always, even if you learned one thing from this episode that you can take away and apply immediately into your life and or career this week, don't wait. Try to apply it in whatever way makes sense to you. And if you feel like sharing it with us, email us at info at thementors.co. Also, we'd really appreciate it if you found this episode valuable to just click share uh, within whatever podcast listening app you use and send it to just one friend who might find it useful. 
Thanks again for listening to The Mentors, and we'll see you next week.